Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 127 and we're rolling south with Gerrit Maritz and Hendrik Pochita. Some admin to kick off and another thank you to those who found the time to suggest extra episodes. When I started this series off a couple of years ago, it was a dive into the deep end. Although it was the sixth podcast series I've launched, it was the biggest gamble. But the wonderful response I've received overall has been a big surprise. A motivator, so thank you for your comments, everyone. I have a website, desmondlatham.blog, which is stuttering along, and in the future I'll be more responsive as I incorporate some of these ideas sent through by you, the listener. Thank you. So back to where we left off in episode 126 as Gerrit Maritz and Hendrik Potrita rolled south trying to get away from Mzilikatsi Komalo's Ama and Debele warriors after their audacious raid on his main homestead in the Klein Mariko Valley. Their main target of the raid, Mzilikatsi, along with a man known as Kalipi, his two IC, were actually 50 miles north of Mariko when the raid took place and thus avoided death by a four-tracker musket. The returning party of trekkers was exultant, having dealt the Amandibeli a severe blow. 107 horsemen made their way back along with 58 Paralong footmen carrying shields and assegais, herding 6,500 cattle and thousands of sheep along with two ox wagons with the three American missionaries, their two wives and two young children. The commando trekked through the entire first night away from Masejo in the Klein Mariko Valley without taking a break. They rested for an hour at 1100 the next morning, then trekked on until late the following night. American missionary Dr. Wilson proved to be stronger than the others and was roped in as the eight-layer, the leader of the team of oxen, something he'd never done but had to learn fast in their rush to get away from the likely counter-attack coming from Mzilikatsi. The commando followed the route by which they came, heading northeast, then turning south, trying to accelerate away. But the large herd of cattle they'd seized slowed things down. Thousands of cows lowing meant that the commando was almost deafened as they struck camp and as the men looked back towards Mariko, they spotted movement. It was only a scare. It was a herd of impala. They were all jittery. There was hardly any food, but after a week of travel, they had made it back to Commander Druff on the Val Rafir as it drizzled. There was another sound they heard as they approached, the roar of a river in flood. This would mean they would be delayed on the wrong side, but it also meant once across, the flooding Val River would be a serious obstacle to the Amandabeli. It was imperative for Moritz and Portita's men to make it to the south side, so the trekkers built a raft of tree trunks to ferry the missionaries' wagons across the river. Everything was now wet, and just to add to their suffering, the drizzle turned to heavy rain. Wagons safely across, the commander stopped at Commando Drift for a few days. It took that long to herd the remaining cattle across. Then to celebrate, the burghers shot an ox to eat and hunted game to add to their meagre rations. A preliminary distribution of the cattle was conducted at Commando Drift with the Baralong, the Griqua and the Kora receiving their share of the spoils. Then they moved off once again and the commando split up, with most of the mounted men leaving for Blesbach near Tabanchu, where the trekkers had gathered, while the others with the wagons and animals followed behind. The majority of the attack force left, leaving Maritz and the missionaries to proceed at a more leisurely pace, slowed further by the mud as the rain continued to fall. They picked up another problem. The hide ropes were softening constantly in the moist weather and began to snap. 
Maritz ordered the hide replaced with the breaking chains, which were going to come in handy later when they descended the Drachensberg. Eventually, they all made it back to the Blessberg by the 31st of January, 1837, where they were welcomed by the Reverend Archbell and the Wesleyan missionaries and their brethren. The number of Indebelli killed by the Maritz and Potkita raid was estimated at around 400. Two Baralong warriors had died, one as he entered an Amandebeli hut and was speared, and the other killed by friendly fire. A Furtrecker had mistaken him for the enemy. No Furtrecker had been killed or injured in that raid. As we'll hear later, this invasion of Mariko by the Trekkers gave impetus to an already steady northward shift of the Indebelli population, a movement that would accelerate by new invasions later in 1837 by both the Amazulu and the Trekkers. The victorious raiders' triumphant return went well, at least at first. The lion's share of the raided livestock went to the trekkers, who began divvying up the loot at Blesbach. The Portgita Trek party believed they were owed a greater portion to compensate for the terrible losses at the Val River and the Fechkop battles. As the bickering worsened, the demographics of this area began to change. Three hundred wagons could be counted now around Tabanshu and the Blesbach, while a steady stream of trekkers were arriving weekly following what was called the Voortrekker Road from the Cape. It linked Norfals Pont across the Orange River with the Blesbach, and it was a wide scar that churned and snaked across the felt. There was no mistaking the significance and the symbolism. All who came across this highway would be impressed by the pure volume of wagons, a kind of pre-N1 highway that signified Southern Africa was moving in a new direction. Now that Mzilikazi's threat had passed, or so they thought, the anger that had been simmering between the two Boers flashed into public view. Moritz was a kind of quasi-intellectual, while Portkita was straight out of the handbook of hard men, and because Portkita had basically led the military attack, he helped himself to the majority of the loot, the cattle seized from the Amandebele. This left Moritz feeling humiliated because he had the larger trek party, and was the esteemed judge and president of the Burat or council. The other major disagreement was over Erasmus Smith, the Dumini you heard about last episode, and one of the reasons why I spent so much time talking about Smith and his bellicose wife, Susanna. She was Gerrit Maritz's sister, and Smith was a former mission teacher who worked for the Dutch and then the London Missionary Society with a false left eye and a liking for dop, drink. Smith was not an ordained predicant, and he needed permission from Maritz to persuade the Bergerat to install him as the official preacher. Until then, he couldn't baptize or marry the folk, and Portgieter wanted nothing to do with Meneer Smith. Portgieter's tough bunch just did not accept this less than imposing so-called preacher. When the dust had settled from the Masecho raid, and the real trouble began between Maritz and Portgieter, the latter refused to attend Smith's church services. Indeed, and in what I'm sure you'll understand as a supreme irony, he attended the services conducted by the Americans or by James Archbell of the Wesleyan Missionary Society at Tabanju. The Trek Boers regarded the missionaries with extreme suspicion. These men in black helping the blacks. Now here was Portkita hat in hand reciting the Lord's Prayer with an earnest James Archbell. It must have stung Maritz and Meneer Smith. Smith, with Susanna's support, kept on his preaching, however, using four wagons lashed together and a large piece of bucksail drawn across the top to protect the folk from the rain and the sun. Erasmus Smith 
is really interesting. He had been born in Holland and his mother died when he was barely a year old. Then he grew up in an almoner's orphanage in Holland where his bankrupt father placed him. Not exactly a loving and tender man then. Smith trained initially as a tailor until 21 when he was basically kicked out of the orphanage and after a couple of months of missionary training was shipped to the Cape Colony in 1809. Complaints about his behaviour towards his peers started on this voyage from Holland. He didn't keep a diary, despite the instructions from the Dutch Missionary Society, and was disliked by his peers for apparently being quick at taking offence at anything remotely deemed as criticism. He had an obvious dislike of subordination, a need for recognition, and apparently suffered from feelings of inferiority and a fear of rejection. Then he married 13-year-old Susanna Maritz, an incredibly young age, even by the standards of the time, for a marriage. The unloved Smith had someone that he thought was too young to contest his authority, but as we all know in relationships, things don't work out as you always plan. Susanna gave birth to their first son George on the 10th of July 1814, at the age of 14, and his second and last child, another son, Solomon, was born on the 30th of May, 1816, when she herself had just turned 16. And that was that. Susanna never had any more children. At a time when Futreka women were subjected to nine or more pregnancies, Susanna stopped at two. Very modern of her. She never mentioned why she did not have more children, although her devotion to sons George and Solomon were complete. It's thought, though, that Susanna found herself unwilling to submit to her conjugal duties. Erasmus Smith complained about her fervent faith and constant prayer, and that coming from a wannabe priest, so it's assumed that she used her faith to escape from unwanted physical contact with Erasmus. Although Smith was a trained tailor, it was Susanna who did all the sewing, and the cooking, the cleaning, the baking, making candles, cutting up the meat, making bultong, schooling the kids, sweeping the wagon, planting the gardens. I mean, who has time for the connubial bed when your man treats you like an indentured labourer? Particularly for someone as smart as Susanna. Unlike the somewhat lazy and frequently inebriated Erasmus, Susanna did keep a diary, the main portion from her time when she arrived in Natal. Although she spoke what was called Pidgin Dutch, what we now call Afrikaans, she wrote in formal Dutch. Most of her writing was concentrated in the period after 1843, when the family arrived in Pietermaritzburg. I'll get back to her after that period, after Natal was formally annexed by the British. Meanwhile, back to Tabanshu and the Blesbach. This conflicted group of trekkers expanded in the coming months through 1837, and they slowly overcame their fear of the Amandibeli. In March, and barely two months after the Mosecha raid, Porthita moved his trek party across the Fet Rafir, which is a tributary of the Sant Rafir, which in turn flows into the Val Rafir. The symbolic nature, too, of the Val River, like the orange, belies the fact that southern African rivers are too shallow for navigation. But as you've heard in the earliest episodes, there is an African understanding of which chief or clan owns which river. The water itself is owned by the chief. These geographical marks are clear indicators to all on the landscape where boundaries lie. The trekkers and the British used rivers as the main boundaries too. The other reality about these rivers is that they are thundering powerhouses in summer after the heavy rains that hammer down on the felt. 
They turn from lazy, meandering lizards into full-scale roaring dragons, seething with power. They have to be respected. They are both enemy and ally on a contested landscape. A week or so after Portito trundled off to seek his fortune across the Fetra field, something very important took place further south. On the 8th of April, 1837, Pitratif crossed the Orange River, leading a significant party of trekkers. 100 wagons with 120 men. Size matters, folks. And when he heard about this, Maritz eagerly sought Ratif's support. He knew that Ratif was respected, a man who had the ear of even the British back in the Cape. By now, Ratif was 57 years old, and while not being young, was still restless. With his dark brown hair flecked with grey, his straight, powerful back and piercing eyes, he was easily identifiable. He had been born on a wine farm in the Cape, in Wachenmarkers Valley, or Wellington, as it's known today, the fifth of ten children of Jacobus and Deborah Ratif. His ancestors were from Provence. In France, they were Huguenots. The young Pete tried a few things as a youngster, living in the urbane surrounds of Stellenbosch, learning the art of making money as a businessman, but soon tired of these settled surrounds. Some people just can't stand beauty, you know. They need to respond to the fire of their imagination. He often faced lawsuits in these early days, including the fallout from his liquor license trade. Colonel Thomas Wilshire complained that his soldiers were always drunk because of Pete Ratif's license, and he lost it. Ratif then bought a farm in the Eastern Cape in 1814 and married Magdalena Johanna Olini Hreling and adopted three sons and two daughters. He fought against the Amatkosa and gained a reputation as a good commander, while he sought to increase his visibility by writing letters. These letters indicate he was a refined and intelligent person and became known for his benevolence, except when it came to the English. When the 1820 settlers arrived, he moved to a farm near the Kucha River, near Gramstown, and sold seeds and grain to these naive new Englishmen and women at inflated prices. By all accounts, he became quite rich, but was prone to risk-taking. Some said it was outright gambling and speculating on property. Eventually, this all caught up with Ratif in 1824 when he won a tender to build government buildings. Like more modern versions of this story, he did not have the capacity or the understanding of how to construct a project of this magnitude, and he was forced into bankruptcy. Ratif was also forced into retirement from his speculating and found himself living on an isolated farm in the Winterberg district at the far northern end of the Eastern Cape. He'd won respect, however, during the Sixth Frontier War. He was a field commander and an excellent one, and was respected by both Boer and Brit. Retief, by now, had also taken to wearing a round felt black hat and leather jacket, along with light-coloured trousers, a kind of uniform, and everyone knew him by this dress code and his newfound moral code. Retief's greatest asset was his mind. These days, I reckon he'd be one of those who would launch a social media platform or something, or worst-case scenario, he'd be a politician. Retief published a memorable document on the 22nd of January 1837, his manifesto, which functioned as a kind of declaration of independence for the Voortrekker farmers. It has echoed over the ages, and as we cover various political movements, in the coming episodes you'll hear these echoes. Everything is connected. At the time, he was writing regularly to Andri Stockenström, the new lieutenant governor of the Cape, and left this manifesto behind, saying... 
They were the real causes of why he expatriated himself and why the foot-trekkers did likewise. In many ways, this represented all the things that less educated farmers were unable to put into words. It had ten points, and read something like the Ten Commandments, in a way. In modern parlance, you'd call it a listicle, and someone would probably share it on Twitter as an infographic. Point one, he said the Cape Colony was full of evils. It was threatened by what he called the turbulent and the dishonest, which he could say were the Amatkosa and the English in that order who are allowed to infest the country in every part, nor do we see any prospect of peace or happiness for our children and the country thus distracted by internal commotions. Point two. The emancipation of the slaves had caused the burghers' losses, worsened by the vexatious laws which have been enacted respecting them. By them he means the freed slaves. Point three. He blamed Amakosa and the Khoisan for plundering the Trekpurs and said the last frontier war had caused much desolation. Point four was a shot at the missionaries. We complain of the unjustifiable odium which has been cast upon us by interested and dishonest persons under the cloak of religion, whose testimony is believed in England to the exclusion of all evidence in our favour, and we can foresee as the result of this prejudice nothing but the total ruin of the country. Point five, that they would uphold the just principles of liberty, but whilst we will take care that no one shall be held in a state of slavery, it is our determination to maintain such regulations as may suppress crime and preserve proper relations between master and servant. I'm sure he believed that somehow you could balance a system where there were no slaves, but there would be a proper relation between master and servant. And what were these, you'd ask? We will see. Point six, that the foretrekkers solemnly declare that we quit this colony with a desire to lead a more quiet life than we have heretofore done. We will not molest any people, nor deprive them of the smallest property. But, if attacked, we shall consider ourselves fully justified in defending our persons and effects to the utmost of our ability against every enemy. By now, Fechob had taken place and the battles along the Vaal River. By now, Moritz and Portita had laid waste to Mzilikatsi's great place. The fully justified defence is probably how Retief saw it, which apparently included killing women and children, as Boer women and children had been killed. Point seven was a promise that the Fuertrekkers would live by the spirit of laws for future guidance, but they'd also hand out the summary punishment of any traitors who may be found amongst us. Even as the foretrekkers tracked away, they were suspicious of which of their brethren would be feeding intelligence back to the accursed English. Point eight. And on arriving at the country in which we shall permanently reside to make known to the native tribes of our intentions and our desire to live in peace and friendly intercourse with them. He was to lead a group of trekkers to do just that with Tingan, with catastrophic results. Point nine, that the trekkers quit the colony under the full assurance that the English government has nothing more to require of us and will allow us to govern ourselves without its interference in future. They wanted the British colonial authorities to butt out of their lives forever. And finally, point ten, we are now quitting the fruitful land of our birth in which we have suffered enormous losses and continual vexation and are entering a wild and dangerous territory but we go with a firm reliance on an all-seeing, just, merciful being, whom it will be our endeavour to fear and humbly to obey. 
They were leaving a place that was settled and known for places unknown and relied on God for help. This manifesto became an important document and remains so. So in early April, Pieter Tief had arrived at Blesbach to join the other voortrekkers, and it was long before Gerrit Brits made his political move. On the 17th of April, 1837, Ratif was duly elected as Gouverneur en Oberbevelheber, or Governor and Commander-in-Chief for the entire Futrecker community. The nascent Trekker political movement was beginning to take shape. There were constitutional considerations to discuss, relations with neighbouring tribes, how to deal with the British government, how to structure their church, and of course, where were they all going? What was the destination? These were very complex questions, and I'll come back to some of the Fortricker answers in the upcoming episodes. Back in Mariko, or more accurately, north of Masaka, the Amai and Debele were trying to put things back together. They wouldn't have much time. The Zulus were on their way, along with another Boer commander, which was being planned, and both of these would lead to the shattering of the Amandebele, the remnants of whom ended up in Bulawayo, western Zimbabwe. We'll return to these momentous times next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. You can contact me on an email form there, or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.